Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Last week at Pentecost, we learned was the pivotal moment in history when the Holy Spirit descended upon the earth to continue Christ's work. We know it was a centuries-old prophecy, the promise of the Father and the promise of Jesus Christ that was fulfilled with the 120 in Jerusalem first. This helper, the Holy Spirit, came, as was foretold by Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, where the Holy Spirit would not only be poured out upon the descendants of Israel, but all of mankind. So we examined in the book of Acts not only the 120, but also the 3,000 that were added that same day into the kingdom of God, and that was after hearing Peter's preaching. We also learned of the Samaritans, the Gentiles turned God-fearers like Cornelius, and the common Gentiles that had heard the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the true gospel, and were also being baptized by the Spirit of Christ into the body. Jesus also promised that the Helper would come and that it was to the advantage of the believers that he come. In John 16, 7 and 8, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus' disciples would rather have had Jesus stay with them bodily, continuing to fellowship and lead them on the earth, but Jesus knew what they did not. J.C. Ryle writes, It seems at first hard to understand how, in any sense, it could be good that Christ should go away from his disciples. If Christ had not died, risen, and ascended up to heaven, it is plain that the Holy Ghost would not have come down with special power on the day of Pentecost and bestowed his manifest gifts on the church. If Christ had remained bodily with the disciples, he could not have been in more places than one at the same time. The presence of the Spirit whom he had sent down would fill every place where believers were assembled in his name, in every part of the world. If Christ had remained upon earth and not gone up into heaven, he could not have become the high priest for his people in the same full and perfect manner that he became after his ascension. He went away to sit at the right hand of God and to appear for us, in our human nature glorified as our advocate with the Father. And finally, if Christ had remained bodily with his disciples, there would have been far less room for the exercise of their faith and hope and trust than there was when he went away. The growth of their knowledge and faith and hope and zeal and courage was so remarkable that they were twice the men they were before. They did far more for Christ when he was absent than they had ever done when he was present. And all of those things that I just read are in your handout to reflect upon this week. 
John the Baptist told his hearers in Matthew 3.11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, Christ, is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Last week, we didn't talk a lot about water baptism. We didn't talk about the baptism of fire in this verse. Our focus was upon the baptism of the Spirit. And so John's describing these three forms of baptism. Last week, as I just said, we focused primarily on the baptism of the Spirit, which simply stated is the immersion of the believer into the body of Christ in response to the hearing of the gospel and responding in faith by repenting of sin and trusting in the Savior. We call this salvation, being born again, becoming a new creation, or adopted into the family of God. This baptism of the Spirit unifies all believers into the one body of Christ. So, water baptism... Our focus in the worship hour was not discussed last week, in large part as to not confuse the real baptism with the sign of the baptism. Water baptism is the outward sign of the real experience, the real change when we are baptized by the Spirit of Christ or immersed into His body, this body of believers. Water baptism does not save, as we see with examples of the thief on the cross. He was never baptized by water. Or how about any of the Old Testament believers? Now, the Old Testament believers were saved by faith. And water baptism had not come about until the time of John the Baptist. So, being baptized with water does not effect salvation, uh, just as we learned with Simon Magus, who had not, or who had been water baptized, but was still trying to buy the power of the Holy Spirit for personal gain. He was that uh, spiritual man, and he was a charlatan in many ways. He wanted to purchase this power that the apostles had, and he had already had a water baptism, the baptism of John, the Baptist. So we know that water baptism does not effect salvation. So although water baptism does not save the soul, Christ commanded that believers be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the sake of public confession of faith in Christ. Augustine describes baptism as an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. If even Christ was baptized in the Jordan River, initiating his entrance into public ministry, so we publicly identify with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The final type of baptism that John discusses in Matthew 3.11 is this baptism with fire. John MacArthur writes of this baptism, because fire is used throughout this context as a means of judgment, Here, it refers to a baptism of judgment upon the unrepentant, end of quote. So Jesus will judge the unrepentant sinner by 
fire. Verse 12 reads that a winnowing fork is in Jesus' hand, gathering his wheat into his eternal storehouse and, at the same time, burning the chaff, or the unrepentant sinner, with unquenchable fire. Jesus is judge. We read this in Acts 10.42, who will judge the living and the dead. 2 Corinthians 5.10 forewarns that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. John 5.22, and later in verse 27, tells us that all judgment has been given to the Son. R.C. Sproul writes of these same verses that the winnowing fork is already in the hands of the farmer. That time of separation, that time of division between the wheat and the chaff is right now. Do you see the crisis? The visible church is always made up of both wheat and chaff. At the last day, Jesus will separate the true church from the false. To which group do you belong? That is the question we all have to answer at some point. Am I part of the wheat or the chaff? Is my destiny my father's house or my father's wrath? I pray that we will have nothing to fear from the future judgment of God. But if I assume that fact about each of us, I would be absolutely foolish. Statistically, there have to be those among us who are not in Christ, who have nothing to face in the future except the punishment of God. If that is you, you need to flee to the Savior and to the cross so that he will clean you and change you and make you his own. End of quote. And I included that entire passage because that was R.C. Sproul's heart, and that was the passion that drove him through all of his teaching, was this realization, it is real, root word real, that there are wheat and there are chaff among the visible church. So as we begin our study this morning, looking at the work of the Holy Spirit within us individually, may the Holy Spirit even now give us eyes to see Jesus and to hear that his word might truly turn us to our Savior who rescues us from the wrath to come. And if you would, join me in prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, as we look into your word today, it is my prayer that we would indeed be awakened if we are slumbering or if we don't appreciate or don't understand the work of our salvation, that it is a gracious act from the will of the Father through Christ and to us and the Holy Spirit, that we might become your sons and daughters. And Lord, if there are any that are not, I pray that as we discuss these things and learn together, uh, that it would be more than a addition to our mind, but it would be a change of our heart. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So most of our study of the Holy Spirit to this point has been historically rooted in all of creation and the times of the Old Testament and the work of Christ and his death for us and also his ascension, leading 
to us. And seeing this work of Christ that he accomplished was for our sake and for his glory. And the role of the Father then in all of this work, he who ordains and decrees by his perfect will that all of these purposes come to pass, well, all of that leads us to this point, this point where we begin to consider ourselves. And this is not a selfish consideration, but a consideration of necessity, for learning about God will necessarily lead us to understanding ourselves. We began our course understanding who God is really, in reality, and now we begin to understand who we truly are. John Piper recalls in his seminary days a question that he often said to himself or sometimes aloud after learning about some abstract biblical interpretation or some unknown historical context of Scripture, things that you would probably only hear about on Jeopardy or in a seminary class, things you don't think about every day. Just a quick question. How many of you have ever attended a seminary? or are currently attending a seminary. So, most of us would not consider or think about all of these abstract things, but John Piper's response was, so what? What's the point of learning these abstract things and all of these arguments? Why does it matter? Why does coming to Sunday school matter? Why does learning about the Holy Spirit matter? What does it matter? As we have learned previously, that he directs our gaze to Jesus Christ. Why does that matter? The answer, if we do not understand ourselves, that we are truly sinners who have offended the holy king of the universe and have thereby earned a death sentence, if we do not understand that, we will never understand what salvation is and why we are in such desperate need of a savior. In short, we do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Going back to R.C. Sproul now, he writes a very, um, I would say, encouraging message for pastors. And I know there are some in here that are training to be pastors or have a heart for the pastorate. And he writes that uh, there was a Christian bookseller convention in which a random survey was done of a hundred people to give an adequate answer to what the gospel is. Sproul writes in his book, Saved from What?, which is a great book, Saved from What? He says most of the answers were something like this. Well, the gospel is having a personal relationship with Jesus. Or they would say, it means asking Jesus into your heart. Absent from these definitions were any affirmations of the person and work of Christ— and the appropriation of his work to the individual by faith alone. Sproul goes on to say that the next year he was asked to preach at that same convention, and he decided to speak on the theme of salvation. Preaching on such a known topic amongst a group of Christians already, and reading Christians on top of that, If anyone should know what salvation is, would it not be this group of people who could articulate their faith? Well, Sproul writes that upon choosing this topic to preach on, he had two fears. Number one, 
that the hearers would think it boring, something they've already heard. And that was something that I was considering in this preparation today because this is more of an evangelistic, a defining of the gospel message in our study of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, that the hearer's intelligence would be insulted by this patronizing preacher. He could just hear them at the end of the sermon. So what? We already know this. We came to hear something really profound. Well, the response to the sermon that Sproul delivered, however, was that all that week afterward, he was approached by people thanking him for making clear what it actually meant to be saved. In fact, he said every year after that initial sermon, he was approached by at least one person who was helped that morning. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, out of all of us here, there are four groups of people. Those that are not saved, and they know they are not saved. Those that are not saved, but they think they are saved. Those that are saved, but do not understand this basic work that Christ has accomplished for them, being able to articulate their faith and share it with others. And number four, those that are saved and have a full assurance in whom they have believed. So this idea of salvation or being saved is common throughout Scripture. It is a word that is used to describe being saved from, in the Old Testament, earthly enemies, as in Exodus chapter 15 in the song of praise by the Israelites for God saving them from Pharaoh's Egyptian army. Women are said to be saved in childbearing in 1 Timothy 2.15. But this, is a, this address is being freed from the stigma of Eve being the, the initial instrument who led the race of mankind into sin by raising a generation of godly children. Those aren't my words, that's from MacArthur's study Bible. We also read of the Philippian jailer who asked of Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Now, his question was probably in reference to saving his own life from the Roman government because these prisoners were escaping under his watch. So, although the word saved or salvation is used in a variety of ways, there is this common denominator. Those in need of salvation are in a position of utter helplessness. They cannot of their own ability, bring themselves to this place of safety or of purity or wholeness. So those of you who have encountered a serious illness, and I've heard testimonies of believers in this church that have, or an approaching storm or an insurmountable enemy, they understand this idea of helplessness. To one who is sick, a syringe full of healing Serum is worth seeking. Even if that syringe is in a haystack the size of Evansville, it would be sought. To the person awaiting the approaching storm, a storm shelter with an open door would cause a man to run with his family to salvation from certain destruction. To the soldier cut off from all help, the rescue helicopter becomes the most 
beautiful of things to behold. So when I ask someone, are you saved? One may respond, saved from what? I'm not sick. The sky is blue. I live in a safe environment. I have plenty of friends. I'm a pretty smart individual with a degree and a decent income. My insurance policies cover all that I own. My family's healthy. I'm in no need of being saved from anything. Well, responding in this way shows that the primary measure of this person's security are the things of the world. So what happens when the sickness comes? When the skies turn black? When the enemy approaches and when the job is lost? That security is shattered. There, there is, however, a greater problem for mankind than these problems that we see in the world. This greater problem is known as sin, which is the offense to a holy God and the consequences that God has promised. Eternal separation from God, eternal death, will come to pass because of it. This question, are you saved, refers to being saved from the wrath to come. This coming baptism by fire, when Christ judges the world as the ultimate consequence for sin. This coming day of the Lord is foretold in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3, which says, Now, as the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. While they were saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. In the Old Testament, Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18 reads, this is a lengthier passage, but just listen to the imagery here. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. On the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. And you may be saying, now, I thought this study on the Holy Spirit was going to fill my mind with peaceful things. These images of doves, right, on the covers of most of our studies on the Holy Spirit. Well, as we read earlier in John 16, 8, that when the Holy Spirit would come, he would convict the world of sin. 
and of righteousness and of judgment. So what we are dealing with now is the supernatural. Why do I say this? Well, the supernatural deals with that which is outside or beyond the natural. It's something that that does not exist or function in the world as we would expect, based on the laws of nature. For instance, if I were to hold a tennis ball at eye level and release the ball from my hand, the natural effect would be that the ball would hit the ground. It would take something supernatural or a miracle for the ball to begin rising upwards. We use the word miracle loosely. In football, we might say, it was a miracle that that pass was made between those two defenders. Or, when marveling at some new, const- newly constructed building, or some newly constructed bridge that connects the gulf between two cities, that bridge is a miracle of engineering. These both have a natural explanation. You apply the natural laws of energy, the classical and atomic physics and motion, and these things can be duplicated and explained. The physical creation of the world out of nothing, however, is not natural. It is miraculous. The virgin physical conception of Jesus without an earthly father being conceived of the Holy Spirit was miraculous. The signs and wonders that accompany the ministry of Christ by the empowerment of the Spirit were miraculous. The theophany of the tongues of fire and the sound of the mighty rushing wind at the day of Pentecost was miraculous. It is essential that we also recognize our own conviction of sin as a miracle. For it is not a work wrought by the natural man, but by God. This is the monergistic work of the Holy Spirit. Monergism, this word, is a theological doctrine that regeneration is exclusively the work of the Holy Spirit. As with all of these other miraculous things, so is salvation. John 1 verses 12 and 13 tells us, but as many as has let me start again. But as many as have received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were, not, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this adoption, or becoming the child of God, is not natural. The natural man is an enemy of God. Romans 8, 5 through 9 says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. The carnal mind set on the flesh is an enemy of God. 
it is not able to be subjected to the law of God and in turn will never be pleasing to God. This is the natural state of man, as natural as the tennis ball falling to the earth when dropped. We are all sinners. Being that we are all sinners, we all bear the weight of the coming judgment. In the court of God, we are guilty. It is not only we feel guilty, as your dog does when you confront him about tearing toilet paper across the house. You see the look in his eyes and his demeanor, right? Not that they can reason that exactly, but for us, there is a real guilt, as if you were on trial for murder or for treason. David Crowder, who is a favorite songwriter of mine, writes in a very recent song called Red Letters, describing the red letters of Christ in the Bible. He says, There I was on death row, guilty in the first degree, son of God, hanging on a hill. Hell was my destiny. The crowd was shouting, crucify, could have come from these lips of mine. The dirty shame, sin was killing me. It would take a miracle to wash me clean. You may say, look, look, I've never wanted to hurt anyone. I don't have a vendetta to settle with anyone. I'm a good person. Let me ask you a couple of questions. How many lies have you told in your life? What, what would you call someone who tells lies? A liar? Have you ever taken something that was not yours, irrespective of its value? Well, what do you call someone who steals? thief. Have you ever used the Lord's name as a cuss word, as we are told not to do, to use it in vanity, where it's an empty word? That's called blasphemy. Now, if the Bible says that you look on a man or woman to lust after them, you have committed adultery with them in your heart. Now, if you're honest with yourself and answering each of these things, as Ray Comfort, the great street evangelist, would say, judged by these only four of the Ten Commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? Innocent or guilty? If you answered yes to all of those things, not because I'm calling you names, but we could say that you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer at heart. That's a quite, a, quite a title. Would your reward be heaven or hell based on that merit? Well, 1 John 1.8 tells us, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And you say, okay, I, all right, I'm a sinner then. But the good things I do outweigh the bad. I do way more good things. Well, suppose a thief who stole everything you owned was being tried in court, the judge says, how do you plead? And the thief says, well, not guilty. The judge says, well, there's video evidence, there's fingerprints, there's three witnesses proving the guilt. 
You still have the stains on your hands. But the thief pleads not guilty because the other 364 days out of the year, he'd been volunteering at the local animal shelter. Now, would the thief still be found guilty? Well, if the judge was just and accomplished what the law required, the thief would be guilty. Jesus is the purest, most judicious of all judges. He himself is the standard of holiness. He will judge based on the standard of his own holiness and the standard of the law. No one with the slightest mark of sin will ever enter heaven. Entrance to heaven and fellowship with God requires a perfect righteousness, which we are helpless to obtain. And this is indeed our great helplessness. This is our utter despair. But yet this is the beginning of salvation. When one is convicted of the heinousness of sin, the need of righteousness, and the certainty of judgment to come, there is this moment that we share with those 3,000 at the day of Pentecost, what must we do to be saved? How does one receive salvation? Well, we read in Scripture that it is by faith. The banner, I was hoping the banner was still there, behind me reads, Sola Fide. By faith alone, we receive what only Christ can offer. Why would Christ offer to save such an unworthy sinner who has committed treason against his holy name? Because of God's grace alone. It is nothing we have earned in order that God would bring glory to himself alone. There will never be a saint in heaven that said he or she deserved to be there. You will never meet someone in heaven who would dare to claim that it was by their own merits that they should receive such an inheritance. This is the work of the Spirit, through the work of the Word, teaching us who we truly are, sinners in need of a Savior, who is Jesus Christ. So when we come to this realization and respond to this need of Jesus Christ with turning from sin and trusting alone in his finished work, we know the Holy Spirit has done a miraculous work within us. And it is at this moment we know there has been a change in our thinking, in our desires, and, as our future will prove, in our actions. This initial change of heart is known as regeneration. This new heart within us will cause us to call out to God to save us from our utter despair. And when we do, when we ask God to save us from our sin, we are, as it's been said, forensically or legally declared justified or made right with God. It is no longer our sin that separates us from God, for it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that unites us to himself. Going back to David Crowder's song, he said, 
It felt like lightning hit my veins. My dead heart began to beat, and the breath of God filled my lungs. The Holy Ghost awakened me. And then in the bridge, he says, For God so loved the whole wide world, sent his only Son to die for me. Arms spread wide for the whole wide world, his arms spread wide where mine should be. Jesus changed my destiny. Now, I cannot, as Spurgeon said, look on the back of your neck for the letter E to know who God's elect are. I don't know who is saved, I don't know who's going to be saved. But the Holy Spirit may have even this morning awakened you for the first time, seeing your need for a Savior. Do not ignore this call. As we read in Hebrews 2.3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? For those who have been regenerated, justified once and for all, this is a glorious beginning. And this glorious beginning of faith in Christ does not freeze time. There's a continuing work that the Spirit performs until the day we meet Christ face to face. So what happens within the believer following this once-for-all justification? This continuing work of the Holy Spirit also then joined with our new desires to please God this is known as sanctification, and that will be our focus next week. Now, I know we have some time, and I know there are several who are to be baptized this morning. Is there anyone who would like to share their uh, miraculous salvation Maybe as you're hearing this, there's a sense of gratitude that has welled up within you, and you would like to give glory to God in your salvation. Go ahead, Blake. I'll try to keep it quicker uh, since we ain't got a ton of time. But personally, my own walk was my own conversion where Christ grabbed a hold of me and I didn't grab a hold of him. Uh, I was raised in a church setting, attended church for a very long time, uh, dragged to church three times a week, and always assumed myself a Christian while living a pretty ungodly and lifestyle outside of the church. And uh, this continued throughout my entire life, going down different paths and not going to necessarily get into them, but what happened for me, like how Christ grabbed a hold of me, was uh, I began kind of searching for Christ in some way, God beginning to draw me in 2014. Uh, I remember just kind of going through journals where I was asking questions at a church I was attending, which it's not a very good church, biblically, and uh, I stumbled somehow by the grace of God upon Paul Washer sermons, if anyone's heard Paul Washer, and 
I'm listening to him one evening after work. I was at the gym. It was like one or two in the morning. I'm alone in a gym listening to Paul Washer. Me thinking I'm a Christian already, uh, but still searching for answers. And he explained to me through Romans 3, 23 through 27, in a sermon that's an hour long, he spends the first 35 minutes on for all have sinned. And he makes sure that you understand what that means at all have sinned. Because we hear this word sin and we just think, I, I go down to the jail, and the moment I say sin, you think, oh, I've done something bad, you know, uh, sexual immorality, I stole something, did drugs for those guys. It's like, no, you need to understand what the Bible says about sin in general, about you being radically enslaved to it. That the natural man does not accept the things of God. He will not submit to God's law. And I was hearing this for the first time, seeing that I have such a grave need because God deserves to judge me. For the life I've lived professing to be a follower of his, but yet being completely disobedient to his law, and I hate him. I don't want to come to him. It's like something has to happen. And that same evening, when I was broken in tears hearing that, I, I knew I needed to be saved from the wrath of God. In the exact same way, Paul Washer graciously presents that there is this free gift of salvation, that God will take your punishment for you at that cross. And now he gives you a new heart along with it to actually follow and obey him. And personally, that's what happened in my life was I, I heard that there's this free gift that God offers to dead sinners like me and really have appreciated this sermon. So that's, that's just my testimony. Thank you, Blake. I appreciate that. All right, let's pray to the Lord and thank him for our morning and also for what we are to uh, take part in also this morning. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for all that you do for us. We are, as we've discussed, undeserving. Uh, you are so gracious, and we just, as we reflect on our salvation and what you offer to us, uh, may we never become... Um, lackadaisical in our thinking and our gratitude, but help us every morning, moment by moment, uh, in gratitude, thank you, and also live accordingly, uh, following you as we should. And we pray, Lord, as we, as we will witness all of these baptisms this morning, may we remember that, that it is your work and that you are the Savior. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.